After the puppet Pinocchio comes to life for the first time, his father Geppetto arranges for him to go off to school. But instead of doing that, Pinocchio, of course, falls in with the wrong crowd, and eventually he ends up traveling across the sea to Pleasure Island, far away from the influence of his creator. Upon returning home, he discovers that Geppetto has gone missing. He's disappeared and has gone to look for him. Eventually, of course, they both end up in the belly of a whale together, and then only later they both end up back on dry land when the whale sneezes them up. It's almost impossible not to read the story of Jonah in the Bible through the lens of Pinocchio. If you do a Google search of the word Jonah, Uh, you'll find that on the first page of Hits of Images, there's only one picture that doesn't feature a whale or a giant fish. But, and here's your uh, trivia question for this morning, no looking, how many verses in the entire book of Jonah mention the fish? Just three. In other words, the unbelievability of a man being swallowed by a giant fish might be a fascinating topic for a discussion or even a great topic for a Disney movie, but it can hardly be the point that the Bible is trying to make. And perhaps even more dangerous than getting sidetracked by the great fish is assuming that the story is a moralistic tale, like Pinocchio is, where Pinocchio disobeys Geppetto and he later regrets it and he pays for it. And in the same way, you had better do what God says or else you're going to pay for it later. Well, there's no question that Jonah is meant to teach us something, but the big question is, is that what it's trying to teach us? Well, as we already mentioned, we've been working our way through the book of Luke here at Christ Church, and we have an opportunity now to take a short break and to take a step back, as we often do here at the Highland Park campus, step back into the Old Testament and Uh, enrich our understanding of what Luke is trying to do in the New Testament, or at least that's going to be our goal over the next few weeks. And as we do that, I want you to keep an eye out for three connections in particular. First, during the past few months, we've heard a lot from a prophet who has said, repent, repent, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. It's John the Baptist, of course. Well, in Jonah, we meet another prophet charged with the same message, repent. And the only question is, is he going to deliver the message or not? Second, as we look ahead in Luke, we'll soon see that Jesus draws a comparison between his own death and resurrection and what Jonah experiences. We just read that passage from Luke chapter 11 a few minutes ago, where Jesus promises the people, you're all going to see the sign of Jonah. And I will leave it to Pastor Mike to explain when he gets to Luke 11 what that means, since it's often debated. But what's clear is that there are some similarities between Jesus and Jonah, and we're going to be noticing those similarities together. Third, in just four weeks, as we already prayed about, we're going to gather around the Junior Lake, or whatever it's called, up at the Banner Day Camp for a baptism service. It's going to be, I don't know, 70 or 80 of us getting baptized, including uh, a number from this congregation here in Highland Park. And that act of going down into the water and coming back up in baptism symbolizes something, doesn't it? It symbolizes a rescue of sorts. God has this rescue plan throughout human history. And when you're baptized, you symbolically 
become a part of that rescue plan. Well, the story of Jonah reminds us that God is a God with a rescue plan. As Jonah goes down into the water and then emerges ready to be used by God, but still with significant doubts and questions, which is just like us, right? When you come out of the water having been baptized, it's not like all of a sudden everything makes perfect sense and you understand everything that God is doing in the world. Well, Jonah is one of the great masterpieces of biblical literature. In just 58 verses, there are more twists and turns just about than you can count, although we're going to take a whirlwind tour this morning and try to notice as many of them as possible. I'm going to first tell the whole story briefly in my own words, and then we're going to just look at the very first scene, the very first three verses of the book, and next week we'll move on to a much faster pace. Imagine that in your field or your area of expertise, you have just started to achieve significant professional success. People are finally recognizing the good work that you're doing. You're a valuable asset to your company. Well, that would be Jonah, a prophet who, not coincidentally, roams the shores of the Sea of Galilee some 800 years before Jesus would do the same. And by the time we meet him, his resume already has some pretty impressive accomplishments. According to rabbinic tradition, he is a miracle boy. He is the boy that the prophet Elijah raises from the dead when he goes and visits the widow at Zarephath. And on top of that, by the time he reaches adulthood, Jonah is an advisor to none less than the king of Israel. Perhaps not a great job when you consider the fate of many of the prophets, but it is a great job if God gives you a popular message. And that's exactly what happens for Jonah. He correctly prophesies that the borders of the kingdom of Israel are going to expand, which is great news and is not an easy prediction here in the final decades of the nation of Israel before they're taken into captivity. So things are looking up for Jonah. He's a miracle boy. He's a successful prophet. But then comes the memo you never want to get. Go to Nineveh. You know the type. You've made it far enough in the company to start dealing with some of the big-name clients. But you haven't made it quite high enough yet where you can pass the challenging ones off to somebody else. Now, Nineveh is no ordinary challenging client. It's the capital and the principal city of Assyria, the empire that within the next 50 years will completely obliterate the nation where Jonah is living, taking the Israelites off into exile. So Jonah gets the memo... And his response to God's call is immediate, just like any good prophet, right? God speaks, and the prophet acts. But, in surprising twist number one, the action he takes is to do the exact opposite of what God says and travel in the opposite direction, to Nineveh, on the other side of the known world. Jonah does what no Israelite would ever want to do. He boards a ship and sails across the Mediterranean. Remember, The Israelites are a sea-fearing people, which is not to be confused with the opposite, but similarly sounding, sea-faring. They are afraid of the sea, and their fears immediately prove valid because no sooner had Jonah's ship left the port than he's already involved in a terrible storm. But, in surprising twist number two, the Israelite Jonah 
sleeps like a baby through the whole ordeal, while the sailors, who must have seen their fair share of storms by this point in their lives, are so terrified that they throw all the cargo overboard, the cargo that was the very purpose of their trip in the first place. Well, after Jonah wakes up, they cast lots and determine that he is the one responsible for this unusual storm. And so naturally, the sailors pepper him with questions. What did you do? How can one man be responsible for all this? And in surprising twist number three, Jonah, who, remember, is trying to do whatever he can to avoid doing the job as a prophet, he suddenly professes to the pagan sailors, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of the sea, the very sea on which he's trying to run away from that God. Now, as the storm goes, uh, grows stronger and stronger, the men are pretty much willing to do anything to escape alive. And so, in surprising twist number four, Jonah, who moments ago was unwilling to give himself up for the sake of the Ninevites, is now willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of these pagan sailors who he's never met. They try every other option, but of course nothing works. Jonah must be thrown over. It's their only hope. They do it, and the sea immediately grows calm. And surprising twist number five follows. And it's not the fish. It's that Jonah is traveling across the world to avoid a bunch of pagans coming to believe in God. But no sooner has he hit the water than we find the sailors on board doing just that. They're sacrificing to God and making vows to him. Well, while the sailors are up above water praising God, Jonah is doing the same down below. A great fish has swallowed him whole, and so he does apparently what any person would do in that situation, he sings a song. A song that comes to a rather memorable conclusion when the fish vomits him up onto dry land. And immediately, Jonah hears some familiar words. Go to Nineveh. Apparently, God, in the midst of sending a great storm and sending a big fish, hasn't forgotten the contents of the original memo. This time, though, Jonah makes a better decision and heads in the right direction. And so he shows up in Nineveh. It's probably, you know, it's a long way away. He shows up probably months later after the whole ordeal, and he prophesies, if you can really call it that. His message to Nineveh takes exactly eight words. It's the same in Hebrew and in English, eight words. And lest too many people hear, Jonah undoubtedly mutters the eight words under his breath. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Done. That wasn't so hard. But before he can turn in his time card and get out of town as quickly as possible, we get surprising twist number six. The wicked Assyrians, the enemies of God, people, and the terror of the entire known world, all immediately repent. And not only do the poor, gullible, uneducated commoners repent, but the king himself repents. In fact, The spirit of repentance stretches so far that even the animals are wearing sackcloth. People who argue about the historicity of the giant fish must never have read any further in the book, because what happens in Nineveh is a much more unbelievable miracle than what happened with the fish. Well, God sees their repentance, and he decides not to destroy them after all. And that's the end of the story or so you'd think. It would be a nice, satisfying place to end, right? 
Jonah gets his act together. The people repent. God shows mercy. Lesson learned. But then we get that word, but. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And we think, oh no, this is not going to end well after all. You might have thought that the worst thing that could have happened to Jonah was that he would have shown up in Nineveh, said his little eight words, they would have skinned him alive, and that would have been the end of Jonah. But apparently, in his mind, there's something even worse than that. What is it? Well, the Ninevites repenting. That's his greatest fear. Perhaps, though, he thinks this could be one of those delayed responses. God wants to make them think that everything's okay, but then after the 40 days expires, he's going to zap them all anyway. And so Jonah heads out into the desert to give God a second chance. But it's hot out there waiting the 40 days, and Jonah is very impatient. And so God sends yet another shelter for his prophet. Not a giant fish this time, but a big, leafy plant. And for the very first time since we met him, Jonah is happy. And I hope you enjoy picturing him that way, because his happiness lasts exactly one day. The plant dies, and Jonah wishes that his fate would be the same. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And so the story of Jonah ends with the prophet sulking, and God asking Jonah, but also us, a very convicting question. Why do you get to be concerned about the plant, but I don't get to be concerned about all the people of Nineveh? And we never get an answer. Well, we'll consider some answers to God's question in a couple of weeks when we come to that last chapter. But first, I want to just take a moment to rewind this morning and look more carefully at the very first three verses of the book of Jonah, the first scene. And I want us to ask two questions about Jonah that ultimately are questions about us as well. I'm going to be reading uh, for you from Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the first question that this raises, obviously, is, why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? And several good reasons immediately come to mind. Maybe it's too far away. Nineveh is way up there, hundreds of miles north of modern-day Baghdad. And I can certainly empathize with that. What was one reason that I was open to accepting the call to be the pastor of Christ Church Holland Park? Well, I live down the street, right? I can go home for lunch. If I spill ketchup on my shirt, I can go and get a different one. It's nice being so close to home. Jonah's call is a little bit more like Brad's, who's here with us this morning, and who has to leave Laguna Beach with all the surfers and the self-serve frozen yogurt shops and come up here to insufferable Chicago. Of course, the problem with that theory is if Jonah was so concerned with traveling away from home, why is he so eager to go to Tarshish, a place which almost certainly is further away from home than Nineveh? Well, perhaps instead he doesn't want to go because 
his life is so good in Israel. We've already mentioned his recent success as a prophet. But surely he must have known by that point that the good days would be short-lived in Israel and that being a prophet in a kingdom in sharp decline was likely to eventually take its toll and probably eventually take his life. Speaking of which, perhaps he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because it's such an awful place. It has a nasty reputation, violence and torture and murder. But of course, if Jonah was simply concerned about getting roughed up, or if, even if he was afraid of dying, why would he be so eager for the sailors to toss him overboard during the storm? So Jonah's reluctance is not logistical, it's not based on his good life in Israel, and it's not because, it's not because he's afraid of dying or getting hurt or anything like that. Instead, Jonah's problem is primarily theological. This is what he says when he finally makes it to Nineveh. He says, This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, normally when you read something like that in the Bible, you think, well, that's pretty good news, right? God is gracious and slow to anger. Except Jonah says, God, this is the big problem with you. You're too slow to get angry. You don't make good on your threats quickly enough. I trekked all the way up here to Nineveh and preached to those wicked people. Some of them are probably going to repent. And then you're not going to be able to destroy them like you should because they're wicked. They deserve it. He says, God, it would be better for your reputation if you didn't get involved with those people at all because when they repent, you and I are both going to look bad. And too often, we worry about looking bad as well, don't we? I'm happy to be involved in a local church as long as it's essentially a Sunday country club where I can improve my social standing and connections. I'm happy to be involved as long as I don't have to deal with any really vile people, as long as I don't have to be associated with them. Because wouldn't it be embarrassing if my faith were seen as similar to theirs? A second question, why does Jonah run? Which is a different question than why doesn't he want to go to Nineveh? He could have very good reasons for not wanting to go there, but why is his solution to the problem to run away? Why not just turn the volume up on his TV or something? It's like when we tell Caroline every night that it's time for bed, she pretends to be studying furiously. Surely you don't want to tear me away from this book just to take me to bed. This could be my one chance to get ahead academically. Why doesn't Jonah just do that? Fake some piety. I wish I could go, God, but I'm too busy here sharing your love. I mean, lay the guilt trip on God. But instead, he runs away, a long way away. We don't know where Tarshish is exactly, but it's probably a city in modern-day Spain. In other words, it's on the complete opposite end of the known world. Now, Jonah can't really be fooling himself, right? He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows full well that he can't run away from God. God doesn't need a passport to leave the borders of Israel. So it's easy to be hard on Jonah and think, what an idiot. He thinks he can run away from God's presence. But the point, of course, is that we all do the same thing. 
Jonah's goal is not to go to a place where God can't go. That's impossible. His goal is to go to a place where he has the best chance to forget about God. And I'm sure all of us have done the same thing, at least to some extent. If I know there's a rift between me and God, for instance, I sense that. It could be because of a sin in my life. It could be because of something that God is calling me to do that's challenging. So what do I do? First, stop going to church, for sure. Second, I stop going to small group. You know, if I don't go to those places, I don't have to think about it, and I can pretend that everything is okay. It's a lot easier to ignore God out on the golf course on Sunday morning. Perhaps you've fled from God's presence in an even more significant way. Perhaps, for instance, you've left a marriage. Perhaps you've left uh, a group of friends. I think that's probably happened to uh, many of us, right? Uh, These friends don't like what I'm doing. It could be anything. It could be uh, they don't like my drinking. They don't like the way I treat my kids harshly, my pornography use. Whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference. I'm going to get out of there and get into a new group of friends, somebody who accepts me for who I am, somebody who won't judge me, right? Those are all sort of catchphrases that we hear all the time. And that's Jonah's goal here. Let me get out of the presence of God, not because he can't follow me to where I'm going, but because I'm going to give myself a better chance to forget about God so he can't speak into my life. And it costs Jonah a lot to do that, doesn't it? A journey from Joppa to Tarshish would have been probably quite expensive. Jonah probably has to sell his house. He probably has to leave everything behind. He's willing to do whatever it takes to go out there. And not only that, it's probably a big time commitment. With all the ports of call in between, the journey is probably going to take him, I don't know, a year or something like that to get there. He's willing to bear whatever cost it takes in order to rebel. And we are willing to do the same sometimes. We often talked about uh, the cost we bear to follow Christ, take up your cross and all those things, and that's very real for some of us. But there's also, there's also a cost to rebelling against God, isn't there? That's really what the whole book of Proverbs is about. It says there's two ways to do things. You can, you can fear the Lord and be the wise person, or you can be the fool, and here's all the collateral damage you're going to have to deal with. Uh, we were just reading, uh, I think Brad maybe was reading it too, Mike had sent a couple of us his chapter on lust for the Seven Deadly Sins uh, series in the fall for us to proofread. And that's one of the things Mike talks about in there, just the grating nature of sin in our lives, that whatever it is, whether it be decades of sexual partners, uh, addictions, whatever it is, there are things that we just illogically Pursue. We know that it's harmful to us, but we just feel the grip of going further and further and further away from God. And that seems to be Jonah's goal in fleeing. The good news, of course, is that despite the grip that that sin has on our lives, God is a God who intervenes. He intervenes on behalf of Jonah, and he intervenes in each of our lives as well. And It's to that good news that we're going to turn 
next week when we gather again and look at uh, the rescue and the fish in Jonah chapters 1 and 2. But in closing this morning, I want to invite you to take out your programs and the, the second of the inserts, the one that says sermon prayer at the bottom. I just want to close by saying this prayer of confession together, recognizing that we have many of the same tendencies that we like to criticize in Jonah, that we exhibit those same tendencies in our own life. So would you join me in praying together? Holy God, we would often rather proclaim death to our enemies than see them forgiven and redeemed. Forgive our hardness of heart, O God, and our reluctance to see your divine image in those who hate and despise us. Teach us to love our enemies, that our lives may proclaim your truth. You care for all peoples, whether they are here around us or in far-off places. You care enough to call people to bring the good news to them. Lord, we thank you for your compassion, your care, your mercy, and the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.